The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. In the meantime, we are going to be looking at all things politics and not just politics, politics and poetry, which is an odd combination. The reason we have that combination is our next guest is Dan Mulhall. Uh, Dan Mulhall, of course, former ambassador for Ireland to the United States, to the United Kingdom, to Germany and to uh, Malaysia. 44 years in Ireland's diplomatic corps. And as if that wasn't enough, he has written a book about W.B. Yeats called Pilgrim Soul, W.B. Yeats and the Ireland of His Time. Daniel Mulhall, you're very welcome. Good morning to you, Anton. Good, uh, good to talk to you. Good to talk to your listeners. And you, before we talk politics, tell us poetry. Why Yeats? Well, because in the 44 years I spent uh, around the world representing Ireland, I came across so many people who were interested in Ireland because of our literature. So I found myself talking about James Joyce all the time, about Yeats. And I decided in retirement last year, I published a book on, on, on James Joyce's Ulysses. And this year, I decided that I, need to, I needed to um, put my pen to work on W.B. Yeats because I see him as one of the makers of modern Ireland, even more so than Joyce, actually, because he was involved in everything that happened in Ireland between the 1880s and the 1930s, whereas Joyce had, by that time, uh, by 1904, gone off to Trieste and really only came back again twice. Uh, he wrote a marvellous uh, book about Ireland, of course, uh, uh, in Ulysses, but, but, but um, uh, Yeats' engagement with Ireland was much more... Uh, constant, permanent, and I think in, in many ways more important. See, I think really underpinning all this, Dan, what happened to you was you did the book on Ulysses and you said, right, what will I do as a follow-up? And you opened, like everybody else, the first three pages of Finnegan's Wake and thought, no, I'll move on to Yeats. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right there. I never read Finnegan's Wake, nor will I ever do so. I'm not that kind of reader, I'm not that kind of writer. <laughs> but it's interesting because what you've done is you've taken um, Yeats' poems and you've then looked, you've used each one as a sort of a foundation point for a historical insight into the country at that time. Of the of the totality of them, I have to ask the obvious question. If there was one you had to pin your colours to the mast of, which is it? Which is the best? Easter 1916 is the most important public poem written about Ireland ever, I think. And it's one of the great, um, you know, history poems of the 20th century. Uh, you know, it's a marvellous poem, the way that Yeats was engaged with, knew the people who were involved in the rising, and then, you know, describes them and so forth, and then goes on to to philosophize, you know, too, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart and then comes in the end to say, you know, we know they're a dream enough to know they dream and are dead. I write that in a verse and so forth. You know, it's a marvelous and that wonderful phrase, a terrible beauty is born. I mean, he, you know, in other words, it's, it, it was an ambivalent poem about an event which was central, I think, to Yeats's life, to the life of Ireland and to Yeats's poetry because for me at least, Easter 1916 is the most uh, is, is the first great Yeats public poem, followed by others like 1919, Meditations in Time of Civil War Among Schoolchildren and so forth. But that was the first time when I think you got the Yeats public voice at its absolute mature best. If you want the book, it is called Pilgrim Soul, W.B. Yeats and the Ireland of His Time. And the author is uh, Daniel Mulhall. And as I was saying earlier on, Daniel, of course, has 40 plus years. I won't give the exact number. 40 plus years in the diplomatic... 44 years. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't counting. (laughs) And served as ambassador to the UK and ambassador to the US. And I'm very interested, Dan, in your uh, analysis, because in both instances, one of the roles of the ambassador, I mean, obviously you have to press the flesh and make relationships over there and be of use to citizens. But the other thing you have to do is give a sort of a hands-on, on-the-ground assessment 
of what's happening and what's the discourse and the mood music in the countries in which you are stationed. The two of them are very different, I would have thought, than when you are there. Take the UK as case in point first. We look at Rishi Sunak, and I was saying this to Pascal Donoghue a couple of minutes ago, doubling down on that policy of exporting um, uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda as, as one of just several very brutal policies that we're seeing in that country. Does it worry you the way UK politics is going? I think it worries me the way democratic politics have evolved in different places, including the UK. I was there, of course, for the madness of Brexit. Brexit has has infected the UK political system and it's brought into power over the last 10 years people who in other circumstances would never have seen the light of day as prime ministers and foreign secretaries and so forth. I mean, in a normal world, uh, you know, George Osborne would probably now be uh, middle of the road, uh, you know, effective, uh, pragmatic uh, and relatively successful uh, British Prime Minister. Instead, Britain has had a succession of Prime Ministers and uh, the latest one, Rishi Sunak, is still clearly feels he has to uh, uh, bow to um, some of the more visceral instincts of the right wing of the Tory party, which I don't believe to be uh, reflective of what British people as a whole want. And I expect that uh, in the coming year we will see a, a change of government and a more middle-of-the-road uh, government coming into power under Keir Starmer. Because you, sorry, let me just be clear on that, and you don't think, you you don't ascribe to the current political setup, you don't see that as being representative of a shift in the electorate. You think it's it's unrepresentative, do you? Well, well, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, the electorate uh, expresses its opinion every five years, and we have to wait to see uh, how the electorate will, will uh, go uh, next year when they're asked again who they want to see running uh, Britain. Of course, there's been a shift to the right uh, in various places in the, in the U.S. as well, where I'm currently uh, based. Uh, uh, but I but I don't think it's I, I do think that the you know the center ground needs to reestablish itself, and I think in Britain we probably will see a move towards the center ground. I'm not a I've no crystal ball, of course. I don't know uh, what's going to happen, but I but I think the you know the odds are fairly strong that we uh, that we will see a different type of government coming into power. I mean, already in the last week, you've seen Rishi Sunak trying to tack to the centre. He obviously realises that perhaps some of what they've been doing over the last number of years uh, has gone too far. And I know he's doubled down on, on this Rwanda policy, which, which seems to me to be a strange uh, you know, obsession, uh, because I don't think it's going to work. And, I, and it's also in breach of, of all sorts of international principles. And the, and the idea of Britain, a country with, with its history, actually turning its back on a human rights uh, you know, policy, a human rights uh, uh, convention that's been in place for so long. It, I mean, it's just a very bad reflection on on the current British government. I think they've been too long in power. I think governments, you know, that are so long in power lose their touch somehow. And I think the British government has lost its touch, mainly because of the madness that has been uh, generated by the Brexit process. Have you been watching any of the uh, COVID inquiry um, outcomes? I don't know what your view has been, but... no. No, I'm I'm currently um, I'm I'm currently based at Harvard. I'm teaching at Harvard for this semester uh, in Boston. So I'm up very early this morning to, uh, to speak to you. So I haven't been. I I've been watching more what's been going on in American politics, which is also not very reassuring. Given that uh, if you were to put a bet down now, you'd probably say that uh, Donald Trump has a more than fifty percent chance of being elected president. Now I'm not sure that that will be the case when the day is done, but uh, the opinion polls at the moment are not very um, positive for someone who wants to see 
uh, a more sensible um, you know, regime uh, in America. Because if America goes into a Trump 2 phase, that will have implications for the rest of the world, including for Ireland. Well, can you give us an insight into a thing that I, I, I'm very intrigued by, which is, how is the American political system, the, the bureaucracy, the permanent government, how is it dealing with the, the movement that is Trump? How is the, the centre bit of the Republican Party dealing with Trumpism? Because we're always told, well, buried in there somewhere is sensible real politic and is sensible permanent government. It seems to be getting harder and harder to find. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the course I, I, I've been teaching at Harvard was called um, Things Fall Apart, Can the Centre Hold? And I was talking about centre-ground politics. And certainly this is not a good time in America to be uh, reflecting on the importance of the centre-ground because um, the centre-ground uh, appears to have kind of disappeared within the Republican Party. Now, I know for a fact there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who don't like the direction of travel under Trump and are hoping that somehow they can get the Trump monkey off their backs. But the fact is that the the electorate in the United States, I mean, when I say the electorate, I mean the primary electorate. Because remember, uh, candidates are chosen not by the public uh, as a whole. They're chosen by uh, those who, who register as Republicans. And they tend to be more right-wing, more in favor of Trump, whereas a lot of the politicians, I would say, have serious doubts about Trump. So, so, so unfortunately, um, you know, at the moment, the Republican Party is being driven uh, by the kind of more visceral instincts of the, uh, of the party's base, who are frankly totally sold on Trump and not for turning. And that's the problem, is that it's very likely that Trump is going to uh, win the Republican primary. I think his only serious uh, um, rival is Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, former UN ambassador under Trump. Uh, but she's a long way behind him at this stage. He looks like he's going to sail into the nomination. And then it'll be a 50-50 slog between himself and Biden. And who knows what the outcome of that might be. And of course, the prospect, going back to what you said about the, the sort of the pressures that were happening globally in relation to um, the sort of political centre, if you have a Donald Trump who is potentially, depending on what he attempts to do at the end of it, a single term president, I assume that has huge implications for things like international alliances, for NATO, for all of those things that we so depend on. Yeah, I mean, he's he's made it quite clear that he's going to be very ambivalent, to say the least, about uh, the U.S. commitment to NATO, which, I mean, we're, we're not members of NATO, but I think you'd have to acknowledge that NATO has helped to keep the peace in Europe over the last 70-plus uh, years. So it is a disturbing um, development to think that uh, Donald Trump could be back in the White House. And, you know, the way he's been talking recently, you know, he's it's going to be a kind of a vengeance uh, tour where he's going to... He says he's going to go after all of his opponents. Now, he may not do that, but you'd have to, uh, you know, fear that he might actually do what he says he's going to do. And they have certain, they have plans for, for uh, overhauling the entire uh, public service and, and getting rid of a lot of the, the, you know, the permanent civil service and replacing them with political appointees who will be totally devoted to the Trump agenda. Now, I still have a, a faith in the American public that when they're faced with a stark choice, uh, that they may not like Biden, but I, I hope and, and believe that they, they probably will just narrowly you know, decide again, uh, you know, to give Biden a second chance, you know, a second term, even though there are huge doubts about it. But I think when he's, when he, when he's up against Trump, uh, I think the stark contrast and the, you know, the stakes will then become very, very clear that uh, Trump has a very different 
vision of America's future and one that I think most Americans probably won't be willing to buy into. But at the moment, you know, the opinion polls suggest that for various reasons, the economy, uh, immigration and so forth, uh, you know, there was a desire to avoid involvement in further wars, that all of those things are playing in, in Trump's favor. And uh, Biden is, is currently behind in the polls and, and uh, he needs to, uh, his campaign needs to uh, crank up and uh, start to make the argument that, uh, that, 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 that Trump's, you know, that, that it's too risky for the United States and for the world uh, to go down the road of a second Trump presidency. A text. I suspect this may um, relate to you switching allegiances from Joyce to uh, Yates saying, great to hear Dan Mulhall. Quick question. Is he ever inspired by the other members of the Yates family, such as Jack B and the sisters? Who's next on the line? Is it O'Casey or is it Jack B? Who's the next one? Absolutely. I mean, no, I mean, look, uh, the Yates were, were probably the most talented Irish family ever to live in Britain because they lived in Britain for a long time. I remember saying that at, a, at, a, at a lecture I gave when I was ambassador in London. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I have a few uh, plans. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of looking at uh, Charles Stuart Parnell as a sort of a, a political titan and a literary icon because I'm fascinated by the fact that, that Parnell attracted the attention, the serious attention of two major writers, uh, Yeats and Joyce. I can't think of any other politician of the last couple of hundred years who has, who has been a focus of attention for writers as able and brilliant as Yeats and Joyce. So I, I'm thinking of looking, in for, looking further into the, uh, you know, the Parnell phenomenon and see if I can add some additional insight to the, you know, the great career of Charles Stuart Parnell, which has already been poured over, of course, m- uh, many times. So I certainly wouldn't be uh, trotting on virgin territory. But I hope I have something a little bit different uh, to say about uh, these things because of my experience of, of, of being, a, being a diplomat and civil servant for 44 years and because I'm, you know, I'm not an academic, but I write for a more general audience hoping to bring insights to that general audience uh, about Joyce, about Yeats uh, and in the future maybe about Parnell and maybe some other well, from Irish history as well. I'm, I'm, I'm a devoted historian so... <laughs> I tell you, I'm, I'm definitely getting that sense Dan. We look forward to the Parnell book if that is the next one if you want to get the current one it is Pilgrim Soul W.B. Yeats and the Ireland of His Time and that was Daniel Mulhall who is of course the former ambassador to the US and the UK. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.